0: was trying to silence Golanov really did themselves a huge disservice. Mm-hmm. Sophia Freuden, and I am today's host of Pino and Policy, Arbiters podcast on all the things policy-related, fueled by various and sundry libations. I am joined by TJ Jostrom and Maria Gershuni, who are welcome to introduce themselves and and maybe share a little bit about their background and why they're joining me today. TJ, if you want to go first.
1: Uh, sure. Hi, I'm TJ. Uh, I'm a recent uh, graduate at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Um, I studied in the Russia Eurasia program uh, at SAIS and uh, have a military background uh, studying Russia, Eurasia, Europe for 15 years. So uh, that's my background. And thank you for having me, most importantly.
0: Thank you for coming on. And thank you to Maria as well for coming on. Uh, I'm so excited to have you both here. I'm really excited about the
2: discussion. Maria, if you want to also introduce yourself. Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Maria Gershuni. I am TJ's former classmate, also from Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies in the Russia Erasure Program. Currently, I'm working at a tech startup monitoring social media coming out of Russia and Eastern Europe
0: awesome so for our listeners who aren't aware i am also uh, of a russian studies background so you're gonna just get a lot of russia today i would apologize for it but i am not sorry so just deal with it <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> uh so today's topic is something that's been at least for the again the russia community been a big deal recently but has also i think made a, made a splash in global headlines and that was Ivan Galunov's arrest in Russia. And for those who are unfamiliar, Ivan Galunov is an investigative journalist for Mendoza, which is a Latvian-based but Russian-oriented news outlet that focuses primarily on Russia, but also about news in former Soviet Union, I would say, in general. And he was arrested on June 6th for possession and distribution of drugs in central Moscow, He believes that the drugs were planted on him and later evidence suggests that that is correct. Um, The police botched his arrest and published photos of a raid at another location, first saying that they were photos taken at his apartment and later saying, like, just kidding, never mind. that They weren't. Uh, It was a big deal. Uh, And this also happened in the background of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, which is, I would say, a fairly big deal, especially in Russia. It's one of their premier international events that they host every year. Uh, but this took place while that was happening and just totally overshadowed that occurring at that time. As a result of his wrongful arrest, there was a huge response from journalists, actors, singers, a bunch of private individuals, obviously, who you know are familiar with how the Moscow police and just in general how the Russian government tends to do things that they shouldn't be doing, in my humble opinion, and really like cried out for his release and for the dismissal of his charges. One of the big things that happened in a string of events was on June 10th, RBK, Vedimasti, and Kommersant, which are the three largest newspapers in Russia, all published basically the same front page saying that I or we are Ivan Galunov in a move that, you know, uh, speaks to the solidarity that they have with him. And that was a really big deal, at least for me, because those those newspapers are not known for trying to provoke the government at all. They typically, you know, till the line for the most part. He was later released and all charges were dropped, which is pretty rare. Um, Another human rights activist, uh, Ayub Tityev, was also released in Chechnya at the same time. So it was kind of a weird moment that all happened at once. Um, And like I said, just made a big splash in in the Russia community as well as in the global community. So now that I have my little spiel over with, one thing that I would like to ask you both is just, you know, when you were watching this going down and had your own thoughts and, and opinions about it, like what was the primary thing, like when you first saw that he was arrested and later released, like, you know, how do you perceive this happening? Do you think this is like something truly notable? Or do you think this is just like another event in a chain of arrests and then releases and PR moves for the Russian government, etc?
2: Yeah, so I am an avid reader of Medusa. Um, They have a fantastic newsletter called The Real Russia Today that I pretty much read all the time. And when I first saw that he was arrested, it was on June sixth. they put this out. I honestly, I was, I was devastated. I I haven't, I'm going to be honest, I haven't heard about him before this whole, you know, debacle. And I think that's part of the story. But I was devastated in thinking that he will not be released that there was going to be maybe an arrest. He was generally in Russia, prosecutors don't Pursue cases unless they're sure there's a conviction. So this is very rare that he was released. When I saw the protests, um, so there were protests back in 2011 under in Bolotnia Square, the big protest also drawing out large numbers. But I think when I saw that the protests were coinciding with the Saint Petersburg Saint Petersburg Economic Forum and that um, Ivan was actually a bigger name in Russia now, the bigger trending name in Russia than Vladimir Putin, I kind of started to understand that they were gonna let this guy go home, maybe quietly put this under the radar, but when they dropped all the charges that was something extraordinary, something I very much did not expect to happen.
0: Yeah, I've seen a number of interesting things, uh it depends on what community you belong to obviously, but he is he's well known at least in certain circles for his investigative reporting both relating to the Russian government and, you know, separate from it, just like generally interesting stories about typically about corruption or illegal activity, you know, within Russia involving various parties. Um, and we can get into the, the story that got him arrested uh, later, but I also want to hear TJ's, TJ's reaction to when this was going down, what, what he thought of it and like his initial thoughts.
1: Well, I thought it was really interesting, right? So the news of a journalist being arrested in Russia didn't really cause too much of a, uh, a ruffle, I guess, uh, from the way I see it, because it, to me, and I think probably a lot of other folks, it, it's, it would seem like it's business as usual in Russia. I think a lot of people have a negative image of press freedom over there as it is, and that a lot of that's for good reason. But like like Maria was saying, I, I think the release of it, and not just the release, but like how quickly he is released, and the subsequent uh, termination of what was it the police chief and then someone in the city council, right? Um,
0: a number of people were fired, and then even more people were recommended to be fired. I forget exactly who, but it was quite a laundry list.
1: Right, and that and this happened so fast. I mean, this is only ten days after the fact, and you know, since then he was jailed, beaten, put on house arrest, charges dropped, people fired. Uh, like this. All on the 10-day span, I mean, this has moved lightning quick. And I think that's the biggest surprise to me out of this whole thing is, is how quickly it moved, uh, the results, uh, and also how much attention it got, not just not just in the Western world, but especially within Russia. Because uh, Golanov was not, so he was well-known amongst his peers, but, I mean, he didn't report on national, uh, like, he didn't write against uh, the government he wasn't necessarily a dissident right, but he did write about things that affected everyday Russians like uh, whether it's you know carving or whether it's stones in a park or whether it's a funeral industry or or a schoolhouse uh, these are everyday things that Golunov wrote about um, and I think that's what makes it so remarkable is that he was otherwise as unheralded as he was to the uh, to the larger media consumers
0: yeah um, I also want to talk about the story that most people assume is the reason why he got arrested he I think it, I forget if it was shortly before he was arrested or shortly after he was arrested but in the, in the works of, of around that time um, he was intending on publishing through Medusa a huge story that he had done as TJ mentioned on the funeral industry in Russia which I won't go into too many details of it but it's a fantastic report there's an English version of it on Medusa that anyone can go read if they want to and a Russian version if you want to do the hard mode um the, the industry itself uh one estimate has it at worth uh 924.6 million u.s dollars in terms of just like the general the general worth of this industry and it's like a huge expose on the relationship between organized crime oligarchs uh municipalities regional governments just like pretty much everyday people as well just a very strange story but again worth a lot of money um and uh harkens back to a lot of what happened in russia in the 1990s either with organized crime or with like the privatization of various uh, enterprises and industries. Go check it out. Uh, this is not sponsored by Medusa, by the way, just in case anyone's curious, but just a good read. Another arrest that comes to mind, like when I first saw all of this going down, the first thing that popped into my head was Magnitsky, who was arrested back in, I wanna I want say 2007 or 2008. Um, am I wrong?
1: Yeah, he was arrested in 2008.
0: Okay, okay, so Magnitsky was arrested in 2008 and he was a Russian tax advisor. Some people call him an accountant who uh, in the briefest of, of stories saw some numbers going down in the work that he was doing and tried to whistleblow on them. Later was arrested and basically beaten and starved to death having been incarcerated. And this was a big deal just in Russia, but also internationally. And when I heard that uh, Galunov had been arrested and wasn't given an, a lawyer and had been beaten and wasn't seen by a doctor right away and all of these other things. I was really concerned because I had heard all these, all of these details before about Magnitsky and then all of a sudden he's being released. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. again Magnitsky was, you know, arrested and killed while in custody. Um, And that to me is a huge difference and also begs the question of why, you know, why, uh, you know, this person who isn't super well known, at least internationally, why is he so important? Uh, Was it the fact that these newspapers printed this front page in solidarity, which was a big move? Was it just like the huge public outcry? Was it something
2: else going on? Was it some kind of political underhanded move? I think the reason that this this is getting so much attention is because this is happening in Moscow. Um, To someone who, and Moscow is pretty much the center of dissent and liberalism, Moscow and St. Petersburg, you know, it's not like those journalists that died in the far off Central African Republic. It's not a journalist going to Chechnya or Dagestan and getting murdered by thugs there. It's similar to Magnitsky and it's similar to Boris Nemtsov because this is happening in Moscow and these are the cases that seem to get a lot of international traction. Why it happened? And this also points to why the release and um, the firings happened so quickly. I think that the current system, um, the patronage system in Russia is rather fragment fragmented. And I think that there was someone in it who overplayed their cards, somebody in there who was personally who personally had something to lose from the funeral investigation, and decided that they were going to have this person arrested. They clearly did not think this through, that this was going to be a big deal, but there is there was a part of that system, a, I would say, middle to lower tier person, but with enough power to, to have a couple of policemen do this, that was going to lose a lot if this report continued, and they decided to scare this person, have them arrested, um, and ensure that they were not going to continue their report. I mean, the opposite ended up happening. This was a poorly thought-out plan, but that is my my guess as to why Ivan was arrested.
1: My thoughts are pretty similar. Um, but like, what struck me most by this is is just the response, right? Like the the powerful images you saw in those uh, in the media sites where they you had the same headline, and as mentioned before, these are. These are media sites that more or less toe the line, uh, Kremlin-wise, and they don't speak out against the state or against Putin, by and large. So I think that plus the one-man protests were really remarkable in that, I mean, these protesters were facing threats from the police and you know their civil society found a way to work around laws that prevented such a thing from happening, right? So uh, was it after 2012, I think uh, protest laws Became much stricter, and I don't want to say anything more than one person gathering in a in an organized protest like that has to have some sort of a permit. But uh, I think it was amazing and really remarkable that they had such a coordinated uh, display of you know, displeasure with with the uh, with the power vertical, you know, within Moscow, within you know the state security apparatus. And I, I think that was, I think that was truly. So I, I think that was something that's truly different than I've seen in any other. Um, perhaps maybe even in the Nemtsov or the, or the uh, Magnitsky, uh, Magnitsky uh, uh, situations.
0: Yeah. I think um, one thing that, that makes it maybe more special in other ways is that with uh, Magnitsky in some ways uh, was obviously way more, I think he was way more of a provocation to the state directly than Galunov is or has been in the past. And then uh, with Maybe Alexei Navalny or with yeah uh, Nensov, who was shot and killed in 2014, I want to say, or maybe it was 2015, uh, a, a, a number of years ago, who at the at the time was the like most well-known uh, sort of oppositional figure in Russia. You know, these people are known for taking a, a very strong like a stance against the state, whereas Golunov wasn't. He was just a reporter, and it was also just like seriously botched. Like they couldn't have done it. TJ and I were talking about this earlier today. Like. They weren't even trying to try to look good, you know, they just looked really bad. Whether, you know, as Maria said, it was sort of that that mid-level manager that was trying to get this guy arrested and like the whole thing got messed up. But, you know, it's not the first time that police in Russia have have done a poor job of trying to cover their their facts, but I would say this is also a pretty remarkable circumstance.
2: Yeah, if I can just comment about, once again, just what um, makes uh, Galuno just so different than the other cases as well is that, he isn't investing, you know, super high level oligarch fraud or military involvement in foreign countries. The things that he is investigating are the things that hurt the everyday Russians, that sort of low to mid-level kind of crime, even the people involved in his like fantastic funeral investigation, they are they are decent-sized players, but they're not the major players in um, in Russia in the inner circle. So it's just the fact that he, by simply looking at the people who are pretty much at the lowest of society, people on public housing, or people you know just emotionally traumatized mourning people who, whose relatives have passed on, by looking at those taking advantage of them. Um, he was fighting he he was fighting for those people, not getting involved in high level things. So the fact that he was targeted and arrested for that also sort of sets him apart from those directly antagonizing the powers that be in the government, military structures and the main oligarchs.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Just in terms of because there is no I don't want to say no middle class, because there is a middle class of Russia. It's pretty small, but there is one. But because there aren't so many like, like small to medium sized fish in the pond, it really creates this like gap where any number of things can go on and it's kind of a free for all. Whereas like you start hitting at, especially the people that control either oil and oil and gas companies obviously is the go-to when you're talking about Russia and people who have money. Um, but uh, maybe arms dealing manufacturers, people involved, like heavily involved in trade, finance, agriculture, et cetera. Um, I know in the past, like, especially when it comes to reporters being punished, it's often about, yeah, like reporting about really sensitive matters. Like, um, I think one of, the, one of the ones that stands out in my mind, and this was actually a long time ago, but Anna Polikovskaya, uh, she was a reporter who was shot in her own apartment back in 2006, basically as a result of uh, reporting on war crimes that were occurring in Chechnya in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that, like, that's a classic example of something that's, like, not, you know, not okay, quote, unquote, in the eyes of the Kremlin to report about. But, you know, it doesn't cost them a whole lot to have Dolunov released after he was arrested in a really sloppy way. And he's reporting about something that's not, like, directly under the purview of the Kremlin. I also thought, personally, his release was really interesting. You know, there was a massive outcry against this, one of the biggest sort of, like, protests, obviously, in, in like the traditional capital P protests, um, but also like just like a general protest against something in Russian society that we've seen in a while. There was this uh, sort of lull in uh, just like general political dissent after Crimea was annexed. Um, as TJ mentioned, protest laws were severely tightened. The budgets for police and security forces in Russia haven't been cut, despite the fact that pretty much everything else in the Russian national budget has been cut in recent years. Um, so that's telling, you know, as to where Russian, Russian political priorities are. Um, and then all of a sudden in 2018 and 2019, we're seeing these protests and these like general feelings of dissent and like discontent rather increase again, in part because of Putin's made degrees and the pension reform and everything like that. And also as a result of like a stagnating economy. You know, there's also like a number of geopolitical and financial things happening, I think, in the backdrop of Galunol's arrest that make it a little bit different, maybe, than other things. You know, in addition to the fact that, yes, obviously, he's not reporting on things that are super sensitive and he's not going after the, the primary oligarchs, that kind of thing. So it's in some ways like the perfect storm, right? Like you can't ask if you're on the side of the opposition, you can't ask for better circumstances, either from like a macro perspective or from a micro perspective, like having him get arrested and then release, which obviously him getting arrested isn't a good thing, but if you're gonna get arrested, hopefully release is the thing that you're gonna, you're gonna have later.
1: And I think it might be helpful as well to just kinda, for the non-Russia wonks that are listening, uh, to quantify just how poor press freedom is in Russia. All right, so Russia out of 180 countries uh, listed on the, um, on the World Press Freedom Index, they're 149th. I'm yeah. gonna list off some surprising countries that outrank them. That you know, just to kind of bring this back into like a broad scale. Uh Venezuela is ahead of them. The Philippines with Duterte, <laughs> is ahead of them. The United Arab Emirates is ahead of them. Myanmar, who was just in the news for you know jailing a couple of uh journalists. Um
2: also genocide, you know,
1: low-key. Right. Like they rank higher than russia like it's just to kind of quantify the extent of um of a uh, i I guess like a, a full frontal assault against journalists in russia you know especially the ones that are dissident or dissenting voices the ones that aren't towing the kremlin line so yeah uh so i mean this is why the news of this breaking was unsurprising but the result is
0: yeah no and it's um in addition to uh, Anna Polikovskaya, the, the person who I mentioned who was murdered in 2006 for reporting, she is just one of like a long list of people that have been murdered, particularly since Putin was in power. But even in in the 1990s, when uh, Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia, like it was not uncommon for, for uh, reporters to get killed, either by accident, you know, especially in the 1990s, things were weird in Russia, to put it mildly. Um, so uh, it's not uncommon for them to get, you know, caught up in things, but also just like, there's a lot of organized crime. There's a lot of people out there who don't want you, you know, talking about their stuff and will come after you and will come after your family and, and whatever else It is kind of terrifying. And honestly, you know, hearing about an investigative reporter, uh, investigative reporter getting arrested in Russia, my first instinct is to not be surprised that it's happening, but it to also just like marvel at the fact that like, despite everything that happens in Russia regarding... Uh, oppression towards the press that anyone would want to be (laughs) an investigative reporter, which is like, honestly, a sad and and kind of um, cynical thing to say, but you know, these people are really, regardless of what you're talking about or regardless of what you're writing about, these people are subjecting themselves to a lot of risk. And so it's just, it's it's eye-opening really. And
1: and also uh, to add on to that point, like they're, in my opinion, they're providing a vital uh, civic function you know, these journalists these investigative journalists like i think they're a very strong check and balance against you know the powers that be in a certain country um, a free press is what holds you know these leaders accountable whether it's you know to the rule of law whether it's to the constituencies you know these journalists are like they're performing a vital function in civil society and, you know i think these people should be encouraged and commended but you're right it's a dangerous job and you know you'd hate to uh, equivalent being a journalist in Russia to joining a military, uh, to where you run the risk of dying for, you know, a certain cause, but it's not entirely dissimilar in, in that respect because you're making a conscious choice of, you know, the possible outcome that can result.
0: hmm Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, love- that's harrowing. Yeah, it is. And as, as you mentioned, these people are doing, they are performing a vital service for a country that really, really needs it and for the world so that, you know, we as people who are sit comfortably in our in our homes here and in, in the United States can read about this and learn about this and know that this is going on. You know, it's it's not just for Russia, it's not just for Russians, it's also for everyone else in the world who has either a tie to the region or just wants to know what's going on
2: there. You yeah, um, know, in a funny way that like Guglanova's arrest um, and his story about the funeral business has now been translated and disseminated so far and wide. And the interest for this story is, rather unprecedented, right? So his civic function, his civic duty in the end was actually aided by this arrest, which is just amazing because now now there are people in Volgograd, in the middle management of Volgograd scamming mourners that people in San Francisco know about, in London know about, that would have not happened at all. If uh, A, Golenove did not pursue the story and if B, he didn't, you know, make somebody in middle management with just a little too much power very angry
0: yeah no kidding uh this is sort of a personal anecdote but uh so right after galanova was arrested i posted something about it on facebook and my grandma saw it and i had i happened to see her like the next day because my sister was graduating from nursing school and my grandma comes up to me and she's like wow that story about Ivan Galunov is really fascinating huh and i was like yeah grandma my grandma she's not you know my family's not russian we don't have any tie to the region she previously probably had like no idea about Medusa or anything, any any of this, and here she is like talking to me about Iman Golunov and I just thought that was really interesting. And kind of, it, it did sort of totally. Uh, what what is the metaphor I'm looking for? They shot themselves in the foot with that one, like yeah. you know, they did themselves. Whoever was trying to silence Golunov really did themselves a huge disservice.
1: In so. in spirit of the uh, of FIFA Women's uh, World Cup going on right now, I would say it was an own goal.
0: Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> No, so the the world press freedom index something that tj mentioned up is actually a good segue into the other sort of broad topic related to this that i was hoping to talk about and we continue we can continue to talk about russia stuff that you guys would like um but the other thing i wanted to talk about for this episode was the state of the freedom of the press in general in 20 2019 obviously because that's the current year but uh also you know, in recent years, because it's, it's sort of been a topic that's come in and out of headlines, uh, is the state of journalism and how it's maybe not the best place for free press right now in the world.
1: No, it's so it's not just like the state of journalism, right? It's, it's also like, I think that there's pretty strong ties into liberal democracy. Right. And in relating it to freedom of press.
0: I think a lot of it, but a lot of what's happening worldwide, I think is a result of technology is changing and laws changing and technology related to law and vice versa changing so and russia is a big part of that they've had a Mm -hmm. lot of laws and technology things going on there the world Press freedom as tj mentioned is a metric um for learning about just exactly free or not a certain country is in terms of having a free and fair press the Freedom House also has its own, it's not quite an index, but they have their own ranking system that you can check out that's a little bit more simple. So, World Press Freedom and Freedom House, both good things to look at. Um, the United States uh, is ranked at 48th in the world. Yeah,
1: yep, yeah I want to mm-hmm.
0: see yeah. Yeah, despite having some of the best uh, press protection laws uh, in the world, you know, it's the freedom of the press isn't enshrined in every country's constitution, but it's enshrined in ours. We have kind of a bad situation for the press here.
2: Well, I think those ratings um, must have been impacted by the, the shooting in Virginia. I mean, that must have just thrown the scales deeply, deeply not in our favor.
0: Well, that was one thing. I think TJ mentioned that they had been down for a number of years, actually.
1: Yeah, uh, I, so I looked at uh, 2015's uh, or 2016's totals, or 15, oh uh, you know, like pre-Trump. And even then, I want to say we're at 49th. Um, okay. Whereas when the World Press Freedom Index first uh, was introduced in 2002, the US was 17th. I'm certainly curious to see where other countries uh, that have experienced some forms of like a liberal democracy or backslide or dip- uh, democratic backsliding have you know, rank in this, You know, like your Hungary's, your Poland's, um, maybe even uh, like Czech Republic uh, to an extent or Italy.
0: Italy's actually gotten better at least this year. They moved up a number of of spaces
1: interesting. yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to see where the other ones rank um, because I'm really curious about the tie between uh, assault on the press. I mean, not necessarily a physical assault, right? like it, it can certainly play out that way, but you know, just a kind of hostile, like a hostile posture towards the press and a liberal democracies.
0: yeah, it is very interesting. and I know. There's a huge tie and we kind of talked about this with Russia a little bit already, but there's a big tie between it looks like protests and then freedom of the press being later oppressed, you know, with protests happening in Poland, in Serbia. You know, now there's stuff going on in Sudan. There has been stuff in Zimbabwe, like all over the world, Venezuela, you know, all over the world. We see so many things going on. And in some cases it, it gets better. For example, in Zimbabwe, press freedom is a little bit better now than it was a year or two years ago. But in most of these places in Serbia and Poland, it's really not good there, you know, and it hasn't been good for a while. And it's just interesting, you know, to see these places that especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of Yugoslavia, you know, in Eastern Europe specifically, they ushered in this freedom of like uh, democratization and like just general increased civil rights, increased civil freedoms. And now they're sliding backwards. But it's not just the post-communist countries, right? America's in there, too. France has had their own issues, right? Like the whole, um, oh dear. Yeah, that that happened, which was horrible, right? Um, People getting literally murdered for either satire or for Mm -hmm. reporting the news. And a lot of that I think has to do with, A, there's a lot of people just in general in 2016 to 2019, there's just a lot of us. We have a lot of opinions. I think that from a mathematical standpoint, that's just going to Furthermore, conflicts between people, right? That's just the basic level. You know, be in sort of Western circles and spheres. Polarization, you know, especially in the United States, has increased hostility towards the press, especially amongst far-right groups or white nationalist groups or just nationalists in general groups. That's another thing. Certain technologies allow people to publish fake, public fake news or. Uh, create viral stories about things that are factually inaccurate, and then when something actually reports on wrongdoings and reports on the truth, they get demonized for it. We have a president right now who is known for spitting out news, especially from, from Fox News, but also from Breitbart and from other weird far-right sources, who then calls the Washington Post and, and the New York Times and whatever else the enemy of the people.
2: And it's it's interesting that you say that because the the difference between, I think, you know in the in the former first world and in the former post in the former uh, communist world is that the issue with press freedom from what i understand in the post-communist world is in is institutional in the sense that those voices empowered by new media um help improve the situation like in the Ivan Golunov situation um you know independent news media like Medusa, people finding out about protests via Twitter or Facebook or VK, the institutional deficiencies lie in that when state media and post-communist countries was privatized, it was done very poorly in the sense that only either this, um, certain loyal oligarchs can seize up mass news conglomerate networks and all the channels you watch basically show biased opinion, not really allowing any oppositional journalism. Or are, you know, like in the case with NTV and Kutarkovsky, they were bought up by the state and are now um, voices of the state. And new media and tech media in those places actually fosters some form of uh, public opinion democratization versus we've seen in other places that the proliferation of tech media and new media um, is divisive.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned the privatization of news organizations in the 1990s following the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the, not the, but just Yugoslavia. One thing that that is sort of similar to that, I don't want to compare it too much because obviously very different, but it's been concerning in the headlines in America. Have you guys heard of uh, the Sinclair uh, Sinclair Broadcasting Group? Yeah. 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 So for those of us listening who aren't familiar, Sinclair Broadcasting Group is just a, a sort of a media conglomerate that's been buying up local newspapers and other news outlets across America, um, forcing them to report biased news. You know, they report local news, but in addition to reporting on national news, it t- often has sort of a bias towards uh, more conservative, like right-wing thought. And then uh, it, it made a big splash, I think, either earlier this year or in 2018, they were forced, like all of these Sinclair reporters were forced to read the same script mm-hmm. across multiple channels. And it sounded
1: oh, yeah, like,
0: and they were talking about how there's fake news and how, you know, a thinly veiled, just like a thinly th- veiled statement on how conservative values are being like eroded and fake news is rampant and the, the, the mainstream media is doing a bad job at reporting the truth. Again, very Orwellian. And then uh, around the same time that that happened, a lot of former and current Sinclair Broadcasting Group employees were either anonymously or publicly speaking about their experiences working for Sinclair. How did they, they do this awful thing where when you decide to work for them as a reporter, you have to work for them for a certain number of years and you can't quit ahead of time. Otherwise you'll get basically fined like thousands of dollars. Um, they make you sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, if you're a reporter for them. Like it again, just the most Orwellian thing that you can think of. And this is here in America, you know, where again we like we like to think that we have a free press, but do we actually?
2: I don't know. I, just a quick question. I'm I'm not really familiar with the industry. Are NDAs standard in news media reporting? I know RT makes you sign them, and I know that's not a great example, but I I've, I've heard of that happening before.
0: Um, I don't. I don't know for a fact. I would assume that if you're working for, again, a um, quote unquote mainstream media company such as the New York Times or CNN or, or whatever, you probably don't, but I don't know for mm. a fact or another.
1: Usually like, it's like the purpose of an NDA, right, is like if you're interviewing and or working for a company or organization that has like proprietary information or it has some sort of monopoly on some sort of information for whatever reason, like the intel community in the United States, mm. um, then it, then an NDA is absolutely relevant, right? Like that makes sense. But for it to be in a media organization just seems really off. Yeah, it's
0: um, like ironic almost, like a, like, a, like a cosmic joke almost, right? Like the whole point of this organization is that you're supposed to report the truth and yet here I am unable to speak the truth as a result of a weird legal agreement.
1: You know, uh, last year, I had, or yeah, it was last year, I had the opportunity to interview uh, uh, Nina Yankovitz, uh, who's absolutely brilliant. And one of, at least in my Twitter feed and probably in throughout our community, right, is one of the most well-known and most capable disinformation, uh, fake news um, reporters we have. And, you know, she she had a really interesting recommendation that I think we could probably take in the United States. And I'm just going to, you know, more or less quote her as, uh, you know, if we had civics classes in the U S and we had almost like the Finlandization, which she put in uh, uh, one of her uh, articles several months ago, like the Finlandization of media. Right. So where you, know, these kids, you know, at a certain age, they, I mean, they learn about how the media works. They learn about how the government works and there's a, there's a marked improvement and, you know, like with respects to being able to interpret what's false, what's not, how, the civil society consumes media and researches the media to ensure its veracity. And that would be great in the United States if they ever did it. But I mean, right now we're squabbling over things like common core in the, uh, in the education system, let alone like whether we actually have a legitimate education system under, uh, Betsy DeVos. I mean, there, there's, there's foundational problems with the educational system in the United States, but there's also a foundational issue with regards to how we consume media as as media consumers in the United States, so I mean that that also contributes to the problem and also creates space for these uh, fractures to be opened up.
2: Yeah, I mean I I think what T J is saying is is very important in the sense that from what I understand, the children um, or the you know this new upcoming generation Gen Z, which my generation I guess according to Wikipedia are better at dealing with the uh, with fake news better at identifying fake news than Wait, um, the gen z's are better. The millennials are better so gen z's are better am i
1: rude okay
2: okay cool i'm sorry i <laughs> i think it's just i think it's just because of just growing up with it and understanding the platform better and also i mean there are just so many social media applications out there in you know just like even like tiktok and stuff that millennials are not on versus Gen Z people are on that if you're just bombarded from so many angles since essentially birth, um, you're better at distinguishing. You're better at distinguishing what is legitimate and what is not.
0: Yeah. I think uh, another way of thinking about it, like we're so shocked that Gen Z is uh, better at, it, is better at it, than it than we are. You know, we always like yell at the baby boomers for being like, why do you listen to Fox news? You know, why are you reading Breitbart? Why are you listening to all these horrible news sources? And then we're like, ah, oh, how dare the Gen Z's be better at distinguishing fact from fiction? Like it just, it it makes sense, right?
2: Yeah, we do. And I have to, I have to give Fox News some credit where it's due. I I watched him interview Bernie Sanders and I thought that was a fantastic, very, very well thought out interview. And I don't know. I, I think that the big problem really comes in terms of, you know, divisive media isn't exactly coming from so when people saw Bernie Sanders, when Fox News viewers saw Bernie Sanders be interviewed on Fox News, they began to identify with what he was saying. So I think it's more of an issue of like bubbles and not hearing the, op- the opposition or not really understanding the opposition versus just this sort of like integral, like hatred of of another, an enemy that you know.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, especially with, you know, I think this is specific to Fox News, is they do this thing where they tell you what the opposition is. You don't necessarily mm. get to see it until they do on, on some sort of rare occasions post an interview of uh, Bernie Sanders. They've been doing a lot of town halls lately with other Democratic primary candidates. They want they did one with, um, I think, Julian Castro recently, and they also did another oh. with Buttigieg, uh, which I thought was you know good. They're trying to attract more viewers or a more diverse set of viewers because a lot of their advertisers have been just dropping them you know, for posting mm-hmm. a lot of sort of bigoted things or, or or rather reporting on a lot of bigoted things. A lot of the and, Bill
2: O'Reilly thing as well, which is,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. And, news media is a big problem.
0: Yeah, not great. Um, but it to me, that, that kind of beckons a chicken and egg type situation where it's like, so is your network biased because the network is biased inherently or because your viewers are increasingly and increasingly more biased and like you're you know, they're either a smaller pool of people more focused towards one thing or just like continuously like shut off like the outer sort of oppositional views, you know, like if the platform or the views fall. And I don't really know what the situation is or where the solution lies. It might be a combination of both of them. Um, but it's something that Fox News, you know, previously has been super popular, still is pretty popular, but what their advertisers starting to drop them in recent years, it's maybe becoming an issue for them. So...
2: Uh, It is a corporation after all. I mean, you know, they do have to have have advertising revenue and if their viewers demand something I mean, I look at Fox News viewers or MSNBC viewers the way I would look at Marvel viewers or the superhero movie viewers They want to see more women on screen. They want to see more diversity on screen So Marvel gives them that MSNBC viewers want to hear Rachel Maddow talk about Russia 24-7 the network gives them that Fox News viewers want to know why conservative voices are being blocked on Facebook, the network gives them that. Yeah.
1: Well like don't create like hundreds of fake accounts and then like claim you're being attacked. Like that's a problem. that's probably a pretty good start if you're familiar with the Jacob Wool case.
0: Oh my um, God, well, Jacob Wool. Jacob Wall and there's a there's a number of um like especially on Twitter, there's a number of personas that just I have muted the vast majority of them or not the vast majority of them. I've muted the ones that are that are the most vocal, both on the left and on the right. I forget who are those two brothers that recently got. Oh, the
1: Krastinskys.
0: Yeah, the Krastinskys, which like I've I've always been kind of curious. I'm like, why are they? Why? How do they have so many followers? Like I tried looking it up once, and it's basically a Kardashian-type situation where like they're famous just because they're famous and like for no <laughs> one. You know? Because like-
1: one of the brothers is like fit and like attractive.
0: Yeah. And like, it's just, uh, when they, when it was announced that Twitter banned both of them, uh, permanently for having fake followers, I was just like, you know what? It sucks because they were part of the resistance or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but at the same time, like, do I really want these people being the face of, you know, my, like my political views or the face of like trying to not reelect Donald Trump? I don't know. Like maybe we're better off without them. And maybe the conservatives would be better off with Alex Jones
2: and, and whomever else, you know. So. Actually, yeah. Fake followers thing, you know. I I look online, and there are there are booths in uh, Chinese shopping malls where you can buy followers and likes. Oh. And now, it's, it's it's pretty standardized. Like you can do that. I think a lot of. I mean, don't quote me on this, but from the interaction versus um, followership that I see on some. Um, social media accounts coming out of Russia and Ukraine. I you know some of those things are for sure bought. Um, which I it's amazing that uh it's so it's so prevalent in certain parts of the world.
1: I am actually looking up an advertisement right now on Google. Yep. Uh, that says buy Twitter likes. Like that's that's amazing. Yep. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah Learn something new or day.
2: popular like you know yeah. this is clout. This is monetization of clout. Yeah. So we got off a little bit of a tangent. We started talking
0: about world press freedom, and now we're talking about likes on Twitter. They're all mm-hmm. related. It's all related stuff. Um, so given the fact that we live in this world with all of this technology, all the social media, the ability to buy likes, buy clicks, whatever, in addition to government surveillance laws regarding you know, blocking VPNs, for example, which is something that Russia has done, or blocking certain social media platforms, Something a number of countries have done, including China, especially and Russia as well. Uh, how do people who want to advocate for a free press do so? You know, in this world where a there's this proliferating technology and b there's this movement against against the press. Like, how do we advocate for that? Like, what are what are strategies or things to keep in mind? Like, is the only answer sort of the Finlandization of education? Like, is that that certainly one approach? But are there other things we can do?
2: You know, like. I don't Call know. Out your friends. Call out your friends on Facebook. It's something I've been trying to do. You know, it's just, just politely, if you see someone posting and fake news or something that's not verified, I mean, Facebook for everything it is has done a good job with integrating Snopes into uh, some of its uh, news articles that are shared. I would just go and be proactive about being like, Hey man, like, like this is actually like not true. Like, or this is an exaggeration. Like
1: You know be friendly about it but uranium one
2: yeah yeah Yeah.
1: (laughs) well like kind of going in a bit of a divergent uh route for maria i mean although i fully agree with you maria um it's important to note right like that journalists and not just journalists but you know like higher profile people that have you know a a certain platform within a country you know, especially on, you know, things like Twitter, Facebook, uh, the contact, the, um, you know, other, other sites, right? Like there's an opportunity there to have some sort of control over the narrative. Um, and I feel like, you know, certainly in the United States, perhaps, you know, places like, you know, under Modi's, uh, India or, you know, Duterte's Philippines, especially in North Korea, uh, you know, among others, I'm, you know, that's not an exhaustive list. Um, the state owns like they have a monopoly on quote unquote truth, whether it's real or not. And I think, you know, like Maria was saying, you know, like calling, you know, calling out fake information for what it is, fake information, fake news. um, is actually really important because that way the, you know, civil society is having at least some slice of the narrative. And I feel like that is absolutely vital to a free or even partially free country. So that, that's, that's the point I wanted to make.
2: Yeah. Even going, going, um, yeah. Sorry, what? Well, it was, I was going to just draw back the example of the single, single picket line um, in Moscow in support of Ivan Golanov, Like that's, See, when we, when we think of an idea of civil society, we think of people out there and NGOs or people out there protesting. But honestly, like, we have to think of ourselves as civil society. We are civil society. We are yeah. the foot soldiers, you know? Like, this is, and, and you don't have to do it. You don't really, if if you don't want to fly to Moscow to be a part of the Golunov protest, like, you don't have to. But, like, doing a little bit, if everybody recognizes that this is, they are civil society, it's their responsibility, you don't have to... You don't even have to notice every fake thing that comes across your dashboard. That one thing, that's one less thing out there. You know, um, understanding that you're a part of the, are part of the group that is tasked with making a positive change in the right direction. Yeah, I'm one. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that maybe wraps up our episode of Pinot and Policy. Thank you both Maria and TJ for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. Please come back anytime you guys want to talk about Russia. anything. <laughs> and I look forward to publishing with our listeners. Um, you can check Arbiter out at arbiter.org. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter.